You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My usual co-host Kevin McGlinathan is out this week, so I'm joined by Think Christian's Sarah Welch Larson to talk about two very popular films. First up is Soul from Pixar, directed by Pete Docter and Kemp Powers, and then the newest superhero fair from the DC Universe, Wonder Woman 1984 from Patty Jenkins. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 275 of Seeing and Believing. Music moves people. I'm Joe. I teach middle school band. Music is life. You just need to know where to look. Though we are parting ways, we shall come around to touch eyes again. If love is the foundation, if the purpose be to recycle life, I promise I'll bring us to Spend one. your precious hours doing what will bring out the real you. Love. The brilliant, passionate you. Love, love. That's ready to contribute something love. meaningful into this world. Love, love. Get ready. Love. Your life is about to start. That is a clip from Pixar's newest film, Soul. I'm very excited because on this episode, I'm joined by Sarah Welch Larson. Sarah is a friend of the show. She's been on many times. It seems like anytime I'm out or Kevin's out, Sarah, you are you somehow you're on the show. I'm somehow uh, and- <laughs> managing to finagle my way in there for sure. Yeah. Yes, I know you're you're one of those go-to co-hosts, and uh, really appreciate you coming on. Sarah lives in Chicago, and her writing has appeared at Brightwall, Darkroom, and Think Christian. Her voice can also be routinely heard on the new Think Christian podcast. So, Sarah, last time you were on, I was out, and you and Kevin talked about. The Kaufman picture, I'm thinking of ending things. And then you talked about The Third Man. And I came back and I listened to The Third Man, which was a great review. I, it's, it's a fantastic movie. I loved hearing your, you talk about it. I did not listen to I'm, I'm Thinking of Ending Things because I hadn't seen the picture. I did see that movie today. And I, I want to go back and listen to your episode because I need to figure out what the movie was about. I'm curious to know what you think about it, just like still processing. I know we're not talking about him thinking of ending things, but I'm also okay with talking about him thinking of ending things too. I guess guess since I wasn't on the show, I could offer some thoughts. I'm not really a big Kaufman fan. I did like the movie. I will say this though. I feel like if I had a, a Charlie Kaufman bingo card, the movie would have hit every single square. And so I didn't feel like it was it was a fresh take on his usual material. I thought it was, okay, yeah, he's kind of already exploit, explored this before. It's just a little bit different. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That, those are just some initial thoughts. Kind of like he's refining, refining his thoughts. To be perfectly honest, I'm still not 100% sure what that movie is about, even though <laughs> I saw it a few months ago. So I'm with you there. Well, and, and you know, the film ended and I was like, oh, Maybe she shouldn't have gone to visit his parents, <laughs> which is not the way that I think you're supposed to respond to that movie. But uh, yes, I haven't even talked to Kevin about it, but I want to go back. I'm excited to go back and listen to your 
episode to the episode. And listeners, if you've watched that movie, you should definitely check out the podcast episode. This week, however, we are going to look at Pixar's new film, Soul, directed by Pete Docter and Kemp Powers. Soul tells the story of a jazz musician named Joe, voiced by Jamie Foxx. A music teacher by necessity, Joe finally catches his big break when he lands a coveted gig that could change his life forever. His best day, though, turns into his worst day when Joe dies and is transported out of his body, eventually landing in the pre-life. So not the afterlife, but the pre-life or the, quote, great before. There he meets an infant soul voiced by Tina Fey, and together they begin a journey to discover not only themselves, but the meaning of life. Sarah, I feel like soul is kind of like catnip for seeing and believing. We're talking about the afterlife, the pre-life, humanity's mortality, the meaning of life. I don't know how we cannot enjoy talking about this film on seeing and believing. But let's go ahead and begin our discussion with some general thoughts. So Sarah, in your opinion, is Soul one of the best animated films of 2020, as some are saying? Or, as others are saying, is it one of the best films overall of 2020? Oh, um, I'm going to say one of the best films overall um, of 2020. Um, Pixar kind of speaks my language, especially some of their later stuff where they're talking about loss and they're talking about death. Um, Especially, uh, I don't know, it's a movie this deeply weird um, just really doesn't have any business being as good as this one is, in my opinion. But um, I feel like it works beautifully because um, they're really firing on all cylinders here. The animation is gorgeous. Uh, they've clearly put a lot of thought um, into this concept of the before slash afterlife. Um, and when this movie is in the groove, it feels sublime in a way that I don't think would have worked for just about any other movie. I don't think that you can tell a story like this um, without having it be an animated story. I think it would it just wouldn't work if you were dealing with images of actual like live actors. Um, and so I, I think that the medium perfectly suits the story. And I think that the um, medium is also done. Just Pixar is doing super well with this particular one. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say probably like top five, top 10 for me, at least. Yeah, I, I think it, I think it might land in my my top 10 currently. And I I like the picture very much. And it's fascinating because. I, I, I assume children will enjoy the movie. I didn't have a chance to watch it with my kids. I assume they'll enjoy it. But this feels like a grown-up Pixar movie. We're dealing with these deep existential questions. And for the most part, the answers to those questions are not cookie cutter. I remember when the trailer was released, a number of people tweeted, posted, and said, oh, you know, this looks this looks fun, but in the end, it looks like it's just going to say, oh, yeah, follow your dreams. You know, you, sh- you shouldn't be a band teacher. You shouldn't be a music teacher. You got to be bigger than that. And the film is much more nuanced than this idea. It's much more mature than I originally expected. And you're right to say that Pixar is firing at all cylinders from the voice work, to the animation, to the the designs, and, and the way that the 
afterlife is is visualized and the way the great before is visualized. It's something unique and uh, pretty pretty wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially those those pastels and those neons in the before. Um, and then seeing New York City, or at least Pixar's vision of New York City, made me really miss walking around uh, Chicago, especially. It even made me miss riding the train, um, which is kind of wild, because I, I did not miss riding the train when I was riding it every day. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's interesting, because like this is a movie that I think kids could reasonably watch and enjoy and appreciate, but it's also a movie that I think has a lot of depth that probably would go over some kids heads depending on how precocious they are and it's the kind of it's the kind of movie that is appropriate for adults not in a we're going to wink and nudge and tell some slightly inappropriate jokes sort of way it's it's a movie that is appropriate for adults in the way that it understands the struggles that adults go through as they're still figuring out who they are and what it is that they've been placed on the earth to do this is this is a movie that is about the slow uprooting of a person who's just so deeply buried in his own passions um, that he seems to be forgetting how to be a real person in the real world interacting with other people. Um, I identify with the character of Joe, voiced by Jamie Foxx, very much. Um, I don't really have any one thing like he does. Like I don't have just one jazz thing that is all-consuming for me. But when I find something that piques my interest, I tend to seize on it with both hands and with my teeth, and then I don't let go for a couple of days or a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Um, and then I let go and I find something new. But that's it's one of those things where I understand what it is like to have my entire identity subsumed by something that I've taken an interest in to the detriment of the other people around me because I forget to remember that they are also people who have passions and loves and fears and hopes too. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. This this movie feels like it gets me as a person as well. Um, I identify very much with the character of Joe um, because like Joe, I tend to, I mean, I don't have like one single passion like Jazz, but I'll take something and I'll grab it with my hands and with my teeth and I'll just hang on to it for um, a day or a week or a couple of months um, and then I'll drop it and I'll go searching for something else. Um, which is, and it, it's kind of like what he's done with jazz, um, so much so to the point where both he and I are incapable sometimes of seeing what other people are doing in the world and what their hopes and dreams and passions are. So it was really interesting to see Joe as a character kind of grow as a person and learn to be more alive, not because he was so focused on this one thing that he thought that he was on the earth to be alive for um, but because he'd learned how to balance out that thing and sharing that thing with other people if that makes any sense no that makes a lot of sense and I, I I totally get the relation with Joe's character I don't put a lot of stock into the Enneagram but I have taken it and I'm I think it's number three. It's the achiever. I'm tied with that in in another one. They're they're both just like the same uh, for me. And so there's this this drive to be doing something, which can be good. It can be bad. (laughs) And what I love about this film, and I have it in my notes to talk about it. It's one of those movies that feels like it's going to go one way and then veers. The other way, and I'm going to get back to kind of the, the themes of the film, but we were in the 
before life. And I, I guess I thought we were going to go to the afterlife. Well, we eventually go to the before life. And then it looks like it's going to become a journey film as the characters walk through what they call the zone. And that's where, of course, artists go when they're in the zone. And then it becomes a body swap movie. And that, that surprised me. And then I was like, well, I'm not a big shenanigans guy. <laughs> so I thought they were just going to like make a mess. I like the Paddington films, but I hate the scenes where they he just makes a mess with everything. And it it doesn't do that. And Joe needs to learn to lighten up, to have a little more adventure. And the key isn't always to go out and do. It's actually to appreciate what's right there. And that leads us back to kind of what we're talking about because there's this great scene in the barbershop. And there's so much talk that has to do with with the topic of vocation. What I love, though, is the very end of that and that scene. And the barber says to Joe, he says, you know, I, I guess I never told you this because you never really asked. And it's funny because in a movie where a character needs to learn to lighten up and go with the flow a little bit more and see the beauty around him, you probably, I, I wouldn't expect to see them saying, yeah, actually, um, it's really good to have more adventure and to lighten up to talk to people a little bit more while you're getting your hair cut. It just feels so mundane, and yet that's where the beauty of this film comes from as it talks about all these different big ideas. Sometimes we can find the answer if we're just we're just willing to kind of open our eyes and and look around us and especially look at the people around us. And there's some great scenes with Joe and his his mother too along those lines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. Um, one of the things where I had a little bit of trouble with this movie is that Pixar tends to put in a twist at the end. So I almost felt like I could see the twist coming in places. But I appreciate that they kept turning that twist on its head. And so I, I think... For a decent chunk of the movie, I had a rough idea of where it was going to land, but I didn't know how they were going to get there, Um, which is funny because that kind of feels like a jazz riff, you know, like jazz musicians have notes that they're going to hit at certain points within the song. But between then, it's not a free for all, but it's definitely a lot more free. Um, And so I appreciate that this movie also has kind of the structure of a jazz song or jazz set. in a way that I didn't expect it to be um, and in a way that I didn't expect them to be able to pull off either. Like structurally, it's jazz too, which is really nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it's, there are some really fantastic moments that you you don't expect along the way. And I guess I, I expected it to end the characters will kind of swap back to where they need to be and it's over, but it, it does go further than that. And I, I very much, you know, I do appreciate that aspect of the movie. You know, we could talk about the animation and I particularly like how you mentioned the pastels of the, of the before life. And I, I wish I had the vocabulary to articulate the style of artwork used but it's it's 3D, but yet a number of the characters are not in 3D. And we get this great uh, group of characters, and they're all named Jerry. And they're almost like these 
not stick figures, but just almost like a child's draw. They're kind of cubist almost, I think. Yeah, okay, that's a yeah, no, that's a great way to describe it. And it just feels it just feels very fresh and it it feels like those characters in terms of the artwork are almost a work in progress, which makes sense if this is called The Great Before. And then this this movie has one of the best scores of the entire year with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, and you, I didn't, I, I never would have paired them with a Pixar film, Neither. and yet yeah. <laughs> it works so good. Oh, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, them and the Jerry's, I loved. I loved Terry, um, which is who was uh, voiced by uh, Rachel House. Um, I, I believe she's a. Um, I believe she's a frequent uh, Taika Waititi collaborator. And she's hilarious. Um, and so I spent half the movie wondering, like, where did I know that voice from? And then realizing who it was and just being delighted that I was hearing her voice. Um, I also loved uh, the design. The, the fact that they were able to make things, ordinary things like a whirly gig and a bagel look interesting and fresh and also extremely ordinary at the same time is just kind of a, a technical marvel to me. Um, I Yeah, it's it's a beautiful movie. Um, all of the design is gorgeous. Um, speaking of the music, too, I read somewhere that all of the notes that you hear in the music, whenever someone's playing music on screen, they're actually playing those notes. So if you're paying attention to the piano and you hear a note being played and you see someone playing that piano, they're actually playing that note as it would be played on a real piano in real life as well. Like the the level of attention to detail (laughs) is incredible in this. And it's just one of the many reasons why I appreciate this movie so much. Oh yeah. And I, I read, I think it was a tweet and it reminded me of something I learned a few years ago in that when Pixar was making Toy Story, they had trouble animating human beings. And so if you kind of pause it at the right time in Toy Story, you'll notice that all of the party goers at Andy's party are basically a duplicate of Andy. And it's it's very quick. And that that's also why you don't ever see the face of his, of his mom. And then you look at the character design in this film and it is just i mean it's 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 mind-blowing how far pixar has come in 25 years and to see these types of characters and the detail work that went into it is is astounding i do want to talk a little bit about uh, the afterlife or the before life and those types of themes this is a very existential film what did you make of that territory that the movie treads um i mean it's my existentialism is my kind of thing so um i'm very much into it i i appreciate the level of imagination and detail that's put into visualizing what that might look like um even if it's i mean we have no real way of knowing exactly what any of this is going to look like or what any of it looked like before we came here so this it's one of those things where i don't really have a problem with how they've decided to visualize it because i think that that creative creativity is an interesting way to try to express that truth even if we're not necessarily going to know that truth ourselves um it was kind of interesting that the the before life was populated by a lot of seminars um which is a really weird way to consider (laughs) um like how 
human beings are created like I don't I don't think anybody has ever found their identity in the middle of a sem- seminar personally so that's just it's it's an interesting detail that I'm not 100% sure works um I like that there is a sense of mystery about what comes after in this movie um I, I suspect that that's just because they're they're not really necessarily focused on what comes after. They're really just focused on life as it is right now. Um, but the way that it's been visualized, there's this gorgeous staircase um, that's just sort of going up. Um, that feels very, I guess, Powell and Pressburger, I think, is is the is the name that comes to mind. Yeah, I don't know. I just I thought it was gorgeous. I didn't I honestly didn't really give too much thought to it, though, because I was just so focused on uh, the whirly gigs in the barbershop and on not crying too much while I was watching. <laughs> no, the the staircase definitely gives off this a matter of life and death vibe mm-hmm. and uh, beautiful. And you're right. So this is a movie that is, a, I guess, about the afterlife, the before life. But it's really speaking to this life. Mm -hmm. And I've heard a number of people uh, talk about this depiction of the afterlife, especially from a Christian perspective. I've had a number of people ask me about the depiction of the afterlife. And I, I, I think the best way to describe it is it's a very Disneyfication of life after death. There are there are really no religious uh, symbols anywhere in the movie. At at one point, Joe mentions playing in church, and I kind of noted that because it it I don't know it just for me it was just like this big you know oh church okay they're talking about church in a Pixar movie, and my one critique of this film would be that. You have a character who seems like maybe he grew up in church or he's played in church a number of times. He dies and he doesn't make any sort of reference at all to to God or or really anything. He doesn't offer a prayer. And it does feel like at that point, the movie might be betraying what his character would be like in order to play it safe. But like I said, I kind of I kind of get that. I mean, you can't really expect too much from from Pixar and Disney, um, but the the idea that this is a movie that says, "Hey, live today with the afterlife in mind," in a sense, is I, I think an important point. One of my favorite scenes in this film, one of my favorite scenes in, of the year, is when uh, t- t- so twenty two played by Tina Fey, she is in Joe's body. And she's trying to discover life on Earth, and uh, she's she's sitting down in Joe's body, and she just kind of watches the fall breeze, and uh, there's some kids playing, some people walking, and then a leaf kind of lands on Joe's hand. Uh, what an amazing scene! And it goes back to what we what we're talking about in terms of animation. I really felt like that scene captured the essence of a still moment when when it feels like your soul is is still and you're maybe you're in a city maybe you're outside the city but you just you're just kind of watching and you're just kind of listening and it's it's not quiet but to you uh you're quiet and i just i thought that was 
incredible what it what an amazing scene and there are a number of scenes just like it throughout Mm -hmm. the movie yeah that that sense of paying attention when there isn't like any one thing to pay attention to yeah i really appreciated that as well um made me miss summer (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well listeners that is our review of pixar's soul it's currently streaming exclusively on Disney Plus. We'd love to get your thoughts. A number of people are talking about this film. It's a pretty big deal right now, especially given its release. So we would love to hear your thoughts. Make sure to tweet us at CBeliefPod, at CBeliefPod. You can also email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about another home release, Wonder Woman 1984, here in just a moment. song is Enconium by Evan Schaefer Music Studios. Listeners, I want to take an opportunity to thank you so much for supporting the show. If you'd like to support Seeing and Believing, you can hop on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. We appreciate all that you do for us on the show. I'm excited because Kevin is coming back next week. And we're going to be talking about our top 10 films of 2020. 2020 was a difficult year, to say the least. But there were some very good movies that, I would say, hit theaters, but they didn't hit theaters. They did hit our screens. We're going to be talking about that next week on the show. Make sure to download that episode. And if you'd like to shoot us a list of your favorite films of the year, we'd love to read it on our next episode. Make sure to do that either via Twitter at SeeBeliefPod or by emailing us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Thanks, and we always appreciate your feedback. This world is not yet ready for all that you will do. Your time will come, Diana. And everything will be different. We are back, listeners. In this segment, we're going to take a look at one of the few superhero releases of 2020, Patty Jenkins's Wonder Woman 1984. Sarah, I'm not going to make you tell our listeners whether you think the recent lack of superhero fare is a good thing (laughs) or not, we'll keep that a mystery unless you want to share. My secret identity, um, or I guess my not-so-secret identity, is that I'm kind of a sucker for superhero movies, so I am fine with them. I'm also not too terribly bummed that there haven't been too many, like... It's in in the past year, so I'm at this point I'm ambivalent. Um, yeah, I'll just say that. <laughs> okay, no, that, that that's good. I, I like superhero movies too. I 
I know the new Mutants came out, and I'll probably watch it, even though everybody says it's terrible. I'll still probably watch it, just because, you know, it is what it is. Curiosity, um, for sure, on my <laughs> end, too. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, here is the film's official synopsis. Diana, played by Gal Gadot, lives quietly among mortals in the vibrant, sleek 1980s, an era of excess driven by the pursuit of having it all. Though she's come into her full powers, she maintains a low profile by curating ancient artifacts and only performing heroic acts incognito. But soon, Diana will have to muster all of her strength, wisdom, and courage as she finds herself squaring off against Maxwell Lord, played by Pedro Pascal, and the Cheetah, played by Kristen Wiig a villainess who possesses superhuman strength and ability. Chris Pine also reprises his role as Steve Trevor. Sarah, I, I want to ask you what you think of this film, but first, I think it might be helpful to kind of know how you feel about the first Wonder Woman movie. Were you a fan of Patty Jenkins's previous entry in the franchise? I enjoyed it. Um, I don't think that I enjoyed it quite so much as many others um it was really nice to see say the amazons i don't know fighting on the beach but i'm one of those people who um would much rather see well-developed female characters on screen as opposed to the quote-unquote strong female characters on screen so it's it's nice to see women out there kicking butt but i would also much rather see a well-developed character um who's a little bit more interesting in that way so i i enjoyed it um and uh, I had a lot of fun in the theater, um, but I don't think I've seen it since then, if I'm being perfectly honest. Um, yeah, just bits and pieces. And um, I think I've watched the uh, the No Man's Land sequence once or twice on YouTube because that is a great piece of filmmaking. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, it is. I, I, I really like the first Wonder Woman film, and it, it, it's one of my... Uh, one of the more uh, appealing superhero movies that has mm -hmm. come out in the last couple of years. Uh, I, I have seen it since it was released in theaters. And yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. I think that it it kind of teeters on the brink of falling apart at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's been talked about. We've talked about it before. But but yeah, so no, I I, I like the movie. H how do you feel about Wonder Woman 1984? If you've said that about Wonder Woman, I'm a little worried about what's coming next. <laughs> I did not care for this movie. I am sorry to say. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was one of those movies where I came in with tempered expectations because I had seen some of the buzz about it and that some of the buzz was not very positive. Um, and I tried not to let that color my experience too much, but I came in thinking I enjoyed parts of it. There were some there was some really nice breezy action sequences that almost felt like a callback to Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies, which I really appreciated. I get that they were going for um, kind of a, a 1980s nostalgia superhero comic book. What I did not appreciate about it was that a lot of the sensibilities kind of felt stuck in the 1980s as well, um, which really didn't work for me. Um, Wonder Woman is hung up on Steve Trevor, who is a man that she's known for a couple of weeks 
60 years ago at this point, <laughs> um, which I found kind of hard to believe because she is that kind of she is that kind of character who has it all like everybody else around her is chasing. And yet there is this one person whom she probably didn't know all that well um, that she's still pining after. And I I get that it's a movie, <laughs> that it's a superhero movie. But that kind of took me out of it a little bit. Um, there were some bits and pieces that um, just didn't, it didn't feel like it was all that cohesive a movie. It definitely felt a little bit too long, in my opinion. Um, and I think part of part of my problem with superhero movies as they stand right now is so many of them are origin stories that also expect the audience to already know a lot about those characters. And especially with the villains in this movie, I know nothing about Wonder Woman villains. I'm much more familiar with like the Marvel side of things at this point. Um, and I was a little bit frustrated because some of the villains especially felt so underdeveloped that I didn't fully understand why they were making the decisions that they made. Kristen Wiig as the cheetah, I, I would have liked to see a little bit more about why she decides to do the things that she does beyond she's just a mousy character who happens to stumble into being super powered and then for whatever reason having that kind of power turns her evil um i get that pedro pascal was kind of going almost for like a 1980s like business magnate very bombastic portrayal um but I didn't really understand necessarily why he was chasing that. And I I've had a really hard time buying any of the decisions that any of these characters made, Wonder Woman included. Um, and that really took me out of it, which is kind of unfortunate because this is really supposed to be light escapist fare. And when you're questioning the way that the world works in that kind of light escapist fare, then you're not going to get very far, I don't think. <laughs> uh, I, I will say I, I, I got your pun when you said she's still pining after him mm. and i thought that was a plus i thought that was really good you know so Thank you. Here's, here's the thing i i think i acknowledge and maybe agree with all the problems you have with the film and yet i still kind of liked it and uh it, it's too long the motivations are kind of strange it gets messy at the end and don't they always, <laughs> don't they always? <laughs> i i guess I appreciated this 1980s sensibility, the earnestness or campiness. I I was watching Batman Begins a few days ago, and I love Batman Begins. I feel like Batman Begins changed superhero films. At least it helped change them. It was a part of a part of a flow that changed superhero movies. And what struck me on this viewing is the dark sophistication of the villains and their motivations. Things are a little bit more complicated. The villains are smarter. They are, I don't know if you'd say more evil, but uh, they seem to have more sinister intentions. They don't just want to make money for themselves. They want to destroy the world. And I, I, I love it. I think, I think that Batman Begins is amazing and it's captured something that in the dark night that superhero movies have, have not captured since. But it seems like it created this chain reaction to where now every villain has to be super sophisticated. They have to have this in-depth plan to destroy the world or take over the world or whatever. And then I turn on Wonder Woman 1984 
And the plot revolves around a wishing rock. And the villain, Pedro Pascal's character, he he does what everyone jokes about doing when they get one wish. He essentially wishes for a million other wishes. He He wants to become the wishing rock. And it just feels kind of over the top, kind of campy, very different from what we've been seeing from superhero movies. And I had I had fun with that. I I liked his character. He's very much this 1980s businessman, but to me it it seemed like he was a um a health and wealth prosperity gospel televangelist from the 1980s. And definitely within that lane to me. And just him kind of playing it big is fun. I I like Kristen Wiig up into the point where she starts becoming evil and then it's kind of like, ah, I don't know. It's just kind of silly. Um, but all the same, I acknowledge so many different problems in this movie, but I would probably watch it again. Mm, okay, that's bold. That's bold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, going big. I, the prosperity gospel piece is interesting because I actually hadn't picked up on that read quite um so I, I I really like that reading of of that particular character I think the thing that I had a problem with with this particular movie is that a lot of the the throwback to lighter breezier superhero fare kind of felt almost like nostalgia to me um in a way that I have a problem with nostalgia to begin with because so often nostalgia tends to flatten the things that it's calling back to and it takes a lot of the nuance out of them. And this particular movie felt like it didn't really have very much nuance to it at all, even in the places where it was trying. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Still doesn't quite work for me, but I do I do like that prosperity gospel read very much. <laughs> well, and he's he's on TV at the end and he says a number of things. That just, it feels like TBN, you know, the shows that I watched on TBN, you know, when I was a kid, uh, which I'm trying to forget, but it, it definitely has that, that vibe to it. I would agree that there's this, this theme here where they talk about truth and, and truth telling. And I know a number of people said, oh, this is amazing. And it kind of goes against some of the sensibilities of our age. I, I didn't really get that. And, and, I don't know why, maybe because I really wasn't taking the film super seriously. I don't know if the film wants us to take itself super seriously. I I got to the end and I didn't have an emotional connection to that. Obviously, we get to the end of the movie and everyone has to assess their own desires within themselves. And I thought that was a better idea. So if the health and wealth gospel is, hey, you need to change the way that you think, and if you change the way that you think, you can find success, you can be blessed by God. And these characters are learning, or they're realizing that, hey, my deepest wishes and longings actually aren't good. Like they they actually, the, the heart is deceitful. That kind of stands out to me a bit. Um, but the film is, it, it's so disjointed at times. It does obscure those those themes. I, I do want to mention, I like some of the, as you said, I like some of the action sequences. There's one in the desert and it has references to Raiders of the Lost Ark. It has references, it feels like anyway to me, uh, The Dark Knight where this big 18-wheeler kind of like flips over and it's a lot of fun. And then there's a sequence to at the White House where we get to see 
Diana's uh, golden lasso. And she's kind of, I like the way that, that Patty Jenkins kind of films that scene and lets us see her use that almost like this whip. And I think visually that was, that was very good. That scene also kind of reminded me of uh, the scene at the beginning of X2. Like X2, yeah, yeah. As well, which again, I think kind of gets a little bit at the like, it's calling back. She's definitely quoting. I appreciate that she's quoting and not completely rehashing a lot of these sequences, but it's still, I don't know. I'm, I'm still having a hard time letting go of some of the, the nostalgia pieces there. I also had a bit of a problem with the desert sequences. Um, just because it it felt like a flattening of an entire culture for conflict for the main characters. Um, and uh, Roxana Haddadi, um, who writes for uh, Pajiba, um, had some really good critiques of this movie's treatment of Middle Eastern characters, especially, um, that I really appreciated a lot. So I haven't given too much thought to it beyond what I've read of her stuff, but it's I feel like it's worth shouting out as well. No, and it is, and I think just as a a subplot, it's kind of weird. I, I like the idea of of going to different parts of the world, and this character is kind of connecting to different groups of people, and he's getting their wishes, and and I think that works into the overall plot. But it just feels very strange. While we're talking about some of the controversy surrounding this film. I think we do have to talk about uh, Chris Pine's character, uh, Steve Trevor, and this I might get into a little bit of spoiler territory, but his character is revealed within the life of someone else, and him and Diana are intimate, which brings the questions of, well, is she... She's intimate with this other person's body who's being possessed by Steve Trevor, and that's not appropriate. Uh, you have some people who are defending it, who are saying, oh, well, she sees the error of her ways. I, I think for me, I don't know if I just wasn't paying attention enough or wasn't taking it too seriously. I, I guess I thought it was like a low-key situation where when she sees this person, she, she sees this person she doesn't recognize. And then when she realizes that it is Steve Trevor, she sees it as him. And so I guess I thought it was Steve Trevor in his body, but to the outside world, they just saw the other person because he's basically in this person's shoes. I didn't give it a second thought until I started reading the controversy. Uh, so I, I don't really know what to make of it, but I, I figured we would give it a, a shout out. And I, I wanted to ask you too, Sarah, what did, what did you think about all of all of that? I honestly don't think that the, the filmmakers were really thinking about the consequences of that particular decision. Mm. Um, this In the same way that when he, Steve Trevor comes back, it is the result of a desire that has gone unexamined um, is probably mm -hmm. the, the best way to put that. And I think that that is one of the things that this movie is trying to interrogate a little bit to some extent where it's talking about, um, some, again, like you'd said, the th some of the things that we want are not necessarily good for us or for other people. And so we really need to think about why we want them and whether or not they're worth pursuing. And I think that my problem with this movie is that it does not necessarily take into account the consequences of those desires, even after they have been refuted. Like there are always going to be conse unintended consequences for our actions. 
And those reverberate even after we've said, actually, no, maybe this isn't something I necessarily want. And then there has to be some sort of reckoning and reconciliation and reparations for that. And I don't think this movie really gets at that quite all that well, hmm. um, which I think is is my the, the seed of my problem with this movie. Mm-hmm. That being yeah. said, Chris Pine is objectively the best Chris out of all of the Hollywood Chrises, <laughs> and it was very nice to see his face on screen again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, she. I mean, she has been missing him since since before. Mm-hmm. You know. 1918 or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, during World War One. Before was that before penicillin or I don't know. It, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a long time ago, and and he's back. It's it's interesting, and it, I think it I think it hits at what I enjoy about this film. When this film is uh, a little campier, a little over the top, just kind of having fun, uh, I think it works. When it's trying to be a little too serious, or maybe it doesn't think through the implications of some of the decisions. Uh, then it, it becomes a bit more problematic. And it is a little it is a little mm-hmm. long. Uh, listeners, that is our review of Wonder Woman 1984. It's currently streaming on HBO Max. You can check it out there. And as always, let us know your thoughts. You can tweet us at CBelievePod, at CBelievePod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. We have reached the end of our episode, and this is the part of the show where we recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners. Sarah, what would you like to recommend to our listeners this week? Well, um, time is a flat circle, which means that movies about New Year's <laughs> Eve are still totally relevant. Um, okay. So I'm going to... So rec- you're going to recommend the movie New Year's Eve <laughs> with the collage of characters? No, absolutely <laughs> not. Um, I have not seen that movie, actually. Um, no, I, although I am going to recommend a movie that takes, for the most part, place uh, on New Year's Eve. It's George Cukor's Holiday, starring uh, Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn. I just saw this for the first time uh, a couple of days ago and very much enjoyed it. It's sort of a romantic comedy, not really a screwball comedy, but sort of in that same vein. Um, and just a, a delight to watch people with great chemistry having a fun time on screen um and it's definitely like one of those more like lighter fair movies um but i think i feel like it really gets at the gist of who these characters are and what they want and and whether or not that's necessarily a, a good thing within the world of that particular movie just to tie it back into wonder woman a little bit i feel like katherine hepburn probably is a, an actual real life wonder woman in my opinion so Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I've yet to see the movie, and I I'm embarrassed to admit that for the longest time, when people talked about the film, I thought they were talking about Roman Holiday, and I was like, oh yeah, oh. I've seen that one. And then, Very and then I realized, no, that's not it. But uh, I I do need to check that film out because it 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 does sound wonderful. I, I'm actually going to recommend a film that we both referenced earlier, and that is A Matter of Life and Death from Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. You know, A Matter of Life and Death comes in the middle of this amazing run by two incredible filmmakers. I mean, you got something like the, the Red Shoes, you got The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, which is a great film. And I think this one is really wonderful as well. You can definitely tell that Pixar watched this film probably a couple of times before they produced Soul, or maybe even while they were producing Soul. This is the story about a British pilot 
who essentially cheats death and he survives and he must argue for his life before this uh, heavenly court. He's essentially got to say, hey, here's why, here's where I should, I should still live. Here's why I should keep living. And we get this, you know, grand staircase that we mentioned in, in the soul movie. Uh, we get that here. And uh, this is really a fantastic movie that does uh, consider big questions, uh, death, life, life after death, Life after, life after death. And uh, it's really a, a wonderful movie. So definitely check it out if you have not seen it. A Matter of Life and Death from 1946. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for hopping on the show. It's always good. It's always a treat to have you. And I'm sure in the future when I'm out or Kevin's out, we'll be able to uh, have you back on again and our listeners can hear you talk some more about films. For now, though, if our listeners want to read some of your work or listen to some of your podcasts, uh, where's a good hub for that? Oh, that would be uh, at Dodgy Boffin on Twitter. That's D-O-D-G-Y-B-O-F-F-I-N. I'm under that username all over the internet, so I'm sure you cool. can find me elsewhere under there as well. Yes, and you have, I'm really excited about this, and I want, I want to actually have you on the show to talk about it. You have a book coming out in the spring, should be the spring of this year, and I, I can't wait to read it. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, um, I have a book called uh, Becoming Alien. Um, it's part of Whiff and Stock's uh, Real Spirituality Monograph series. Mm -hmm. And in it, I examine the conception of evil in all six alien movies through the lens of Dr. Katherine Keller, um, who is a feminist theologian. Um, and through that examination, I actually kind of make all of the alien movies make sense together, which is something that I never expected to actually work. Um, and it should be coming out uh, end of February, beginning of March. So coming very soon uh, to a bookstore, hopefully near you. Yeah, that's 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 amazing. And I, I really hope that Ridley Scott finishes this second trilogy because oh, yes please <laughs> uh, yeah there's so much to love about prometheus and alien covenant there there really mm -hmm. is and yeah so hopefully he, he he finishes that out well i can't wait to read the book and listeners make sure to check it out thank you listeners for listening to this week's episode it's brought to you by christinpopculture.com our producer is jonathan clausen who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen i'm wade bearden and until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.